outside, the ceremony for the Order of the Engineer looks like it came from a fantasy novel. Like Lord of the Rings. Newly minted engineers take an oath, also known as a ritual calling. It starts like this. I, Todd Laments, in the presence of my betters and my equals in my calling, bind myself upon my honor and cold iron, that, of the best of my knowledge and power, I will not henceforth suffer or pass bad workmanship or faulty material in aught that concerns my works before mankind as an engineer or in my dealings with my own soul before my maker. The calling goes on for several paragraphs in the same tone. Graduates must also pass their hand through a ritual iron ring about the width of a hubcap, place their hand on a black velvet pillow, and receive the iron ring of the engineer, which is placed on a pinky finger of the engineer's working hand, the hand that wields the wrench or hammer. Like we said, it all sounds pretty Tolkien, but that's by design. When the order was formed in 1922, the founding members reached out to fantasy writer to help them imbue as much gravity and symbolism into the ceremony and the profession as possible. The first engineers to institute the pledge called themselves the Corporation of the Seven Wardens. And when they needed grave words, they reached out to none other than Rudyard Kipling, author of the Jungle Book. Herbert Holton, the founder of the ritual calling of the engineer, probably knew it was all pretty silly from the outside. But at the time, nobody was laughing. The Quebec Bridge had collapsed not once, but twice, due to faulty engineering. The first collapse killed nine-tenths of the steelworkers, leaving 11 alive all while the supervising engineer was sick and hadn't been on site to inspect the warping iron supports since construction had started. The second collapse killed 13 workers, leaving the people of Quebec with no other option but to carry cargo and commerce across a frozen river, which was how business was conducted across the St. Lawrence for centuries. People were losing faith in the engineers. They needed a ceremony. They needed to restore people's faith. They needed one ring to bind their guild together. And most importantly, to give every graduating engineer a reminder. Humility above all else. So the engineers forge their humility in iron. They wear it on their hand that grasps the tools of their trade. A reminder, every time they calculate load-bearing weight or strike an anvil, Humility, humility, humility. You're listening to The Reengineered You. This is a podcast about self-empowerment and all the myths, lies, and misconceptions we tell ourselves. Then we use science and history to bust those myths and re-engineer a better you. I'm your host, Todd Lametz, The Extrovert. And I'm the writer, researcher, and introvert, Joe Anthony, whose job it is to dig through the outer layer of no-duh on the internet. If you're on Instagram or Facebook, you get your food pellet by getting clicks and likes. 
If you're in politics, you're rewarded for getting votes. It doesn't matter if you have your facts right as long as you get people's support. And when it comes to job applications, professional bragging is the only way to get ahead. But what if humility, not narcissism, is the true cheat code to life? What if humility gives you all the money and rewards of winning the rat race without ever having to lace up or compete? What if we had three myths waiting for us to bust, which would prove the value of humility over narcissism? Myth one, humility is all well and good, but it doesn't put food on the table. Success relies on tooting your own horn, right? Myth two, people don't really like us more when we're humble, do they? Otherwise, dating profiles would be way more honest and low-key. Myth three, okay, so if being humble gives us all the gifts in life, then why aren't I wealthy and happy? I can be humble, I'm humble all the time, so where's my trophy? We're gonna get into our mess, but first, I want to ask Joe how he stumbled onto the iron rings of the Canadian engineers. So I'm going to ask you to scroll down and take a look at that. Uh, we've got a screenshot of the order of the ritual calling. Uh, take a look at that picture, Todd. Yeah, it, it looks very, very formal. How fantasy does that look? Like he is... Yeah, this looks like it should be in like a 16... Uh, 1600s castle somewhere in Germany or France <laughs> or something. It looks like the Order of the Skulls. Like it, it looks like some secret Illuminati stuff going on. This is for educated, multiple degree Canadian professionals. Yeah, this is this is basically what doctors and lawyers go through. Um, to to tell people what we're looking at, you can go to YouTube and you can look up the the ritual calling, and what you'll see is you'll see newly minted engineers. So students in like suits, they're almost all wearing like blazers and ties and they go up on stage and they like, there's this big, huge iron ring that the, the student passes their hand through to, to get their ring, which is sitting on like a, a satin pillow. And behind them, it says the order of the engineer and it's got a ring on a poster and I swear to God, it's in the same type as Lord of the Rings. Like, it, it looks like a Lord of the Rings poster, except the words are wrong. It's just hanging in the air, right? Like, it's powerful. Yeah. Like, it's mystic. <laughs> right. Like, the ring has power. And you have the feeling that this is in some kind of arena with all your classmates from college and then all the eldermen, which are the old engineers and professors, are, are watching on and approving that. Right. He earned his ring. <laughs> the elders, like it's elves. Um, you ever, you watch Game of Thrones, right? Oh, yeah, to death. Yeah. Do you remember the um, the, the maesters, the, the old guys that knew everything and they had their, their iron chains around their neck and they would just oh, yeah. wear it everywhere? Yeah, it, it kind of reminds me of that just a tiny bit. <laughs> and this isn't from 100 years ago. This is, this picture is from recently. I can tell by the clothes. Right. Um, so I ran into this story because I was looking for, uh, weirdly enough, ceremonies, just ceremonies that we do for people who achieve a profession. Like 
if you're a doctor, they have a ceremony, which is the, the white coat ceremony. Everybody gets their white lab coat and they, you know, some schools tell them to swear to do no harm, which by the way, the, the doctor's creed, that's not every school that does that. And it's not every type of doctor either. So we give that one way too much credit, but they do have a ceremony where they accept a white lab coat that, you know, symbolizes their profession. Um, you know, lawyers have their own ceremonies. Most guilds that still exist today, um, they have a ceremony of some sort. This one was the most fantasy sort of epic ceremony I could find. Like this, this one was like one, how have I never heard of it? And two, you know, what is this symbolizing? Cause that iron ring at first I'm like, Oh, that's badass. Like, like that's got a, I kind of want one. You know, now that I, now that you see it, it's like that thing has power, you know, like that, that's a ring means you can build anything. You can build a lightsaber or a, a bridge, whatever you want. It's, yeah. It's better than just a diploma on the wall, right? Yeah. You can't wear a diploma or if you do, like I do it, you look nuts. Um, I mean, it's like winning the Super Bowl and you have that Super Bowl winning ring. This is right up there. With that. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. This is the, uh, um, this is the class ring that they're all wearing proof you're in a bar that you have a job yeah but the the real story behind the ring is way more interesting um it is it's not a ring that is like a super bowl ring saying i won this or like you know somebody carrying the diploma around or a letterman jacket this is a symbol of humility out and out um so i kind of i want to do an episode about humility and what you get out of being humble. I think this honors the people that perished. So when you, what they said of this is they want you to see this. Like I see my wedding ring on. It reminds me of what, Joe? That I'm married. And this ring reminds these engineers, these already smart people, that this isn't just math. This isn't just math and science. This is people's lives can, can perish because if I make a fault and make a mistake. Right. You may be writing numbers into a spreadsheet but at the end of the day that could lose lives if your numbers are wrong and so it's it's a powerful reminder um so what we kind of want to talk about with humility we're going to get into the specifics but humbleness in short is the ability to view yourself accurately as an individual to view your own talents accurately and to be able to admit it when you have flaws those don't seem like they are promoted, you know, this day and age very much. Um, if I go to a job interview, my closest friends who are all professionals, they tell me, you know, tell stories about yourself. Um, Brag. Embellish. Yeah. You're, everybody else is, so you need to do the same. Exactly. You have to showcase your skills. You have to put yourself on display and, and toot your own horn. Because if you don't, no one else is going to. So we wanted this episode to basically be one that's not the only reason to have humility it's not just a moral thing there are real significant benefits to having humility and you know i couldn't find a better example than somebody who literally has to wear it for their profession their humility is on their hand like when they touch a tool when they grab a hammer like their that humility is right there isn't this what we associate anytime you hear someone met a celebrity whether it's an athlete or a singer or an actor, actress, and they talk about how nice they were. 
Yeah. Isn't that just the ultimate compliment and make you like them so much more? Yeah. When I even specifically when I hear the word humble associated with, you know, somebody who is like a mega star or or somebody who has done something you know incredible creatively. With the mega rich. Yeah. So they're just so humble and it's just not not about money. If I hear the the phrase humble, it makes me like them more. So we wanna we wanna kinda like crack that chestnut as far as like why do we like humble people and, and what kind of benefits do we get from being humble ourselves? And maybe, you know, some exercises to become more humble. Um, but first we want to talk about the ring. Like <laughs> we, we want to know, you know, where is the source of this, you know, the one ring's true power? Where, where is it? Where was it forged? You know, what does it symbolize? Um, so would you mind getting us into the, the bridge collapse? What started in the late 1880s, and this was Quebec City, which is a major city. So there's major commerce there. They needed this to pass over the the St. Lawrence River. And the only way they would get across the the St. Louis River before this bridge was by ferry. But Canada, Quebec, it's very, very cold. So guess what happens to the river, Joe? It freezes. Right. So then you're stuck on walking across this very dangerous, very, (laughs) very thin ice. So the city knows that they needed to build a bridge. So it's 1900s. I'm carrying a barrel of pork and I'm hoping it doesn't crack under my feet. Like nuts to using cars. You can, by the way, you can look up old pictures of people hand carrying like lines of people carrying stuff across this river, which is nuts in itself. And the, the ice was not evenly. It was certainly not an ice, ice skating ring. Okay, right. <laughs> <laughs> the Montreal Quebecs were not playing ice at this. This was lumpy. It was like rock climbing. It looked like they were climbing Everest. Right. So it needed to be done, but it wasn't a high enough priority. So the the state was not actually supporting it as, as much as they should have. So the engineers were already off, kind of uh, behind because they were doing this on a shoestring budget. Okay. Now, this is a long bridge, four miles long, seven kilometers. And once they started working on it, um, they noticed, the workers noticed that there was a lot of bending and bowing. And the two head engineers who were tasked with this, who were, this was probably their life's work. This was their monumental work for them. They weren't even on, they weren't on site. There was terrible communication. They're doing their commission by telegram, not by on-site talking to the men who are actually working on this bridge. <laughs> uh, early 1900s Zoom calling instead of being at the office kind of stuff. It, it makes you scratch your head. This very long bridge for a very important city that needed resources didn't get the resources, didn't get the right um the right amount of people recruited to do it. They didn't have the experts that they should have. And it had collapsed in 1907 after working on it, the unfinished bit, um, unfinished bridge collapsed and 75 men fell crushed. And at the time it was the single worst number one bridge accident in the history of the world. Can you imagine going to work and seeing that you know, the, the bridge you're working on is starting to bend and you like, I, I know that people skipped work cause they knew it was going to collapse or they had a bad feeling about it. 
what about the coworkers who kept going in? Like, I'm sure everybody said it. Like, like somebody had to have been like, hey, buddy, are you sure you want to go into work today? Like, <laughs> well, Yeah, and, and they can see it bowing in, in support areas where it's not supposed to. I thought this was interesting, that, that the engineers that they had didn't have degrees in bridge building. They're, all of their uh, experience was from building other bridges. But this one was like 10 times anything they'd worked on before. Right. They, they were not qualified to do this kind of bridge. Yeah. They had done so far, but it was the same type of bridge. They had done cantilever bridges before. Yes. Just not that long. And then the Eiffel Tower guy signed off on that kind of bridge. He said, that's the best kind. Right. For, He's like, for, yeah. For that distance. But the the design was good. It is currently a cantilever bridge. The The actual Quebec bridge today is a cantilever. But the issue is that the engineer who had, like, this was sort of his career as making cantilever bridges. He was sick. He was staying off-site. And he basically, um, when his old design didn't fit the river, he just extended it 10%. Like, he, he made the bridge longer without changing the design to you know, to account for that weight for the, the additional 10% weight of the bridge. Well, I know the kind of men that work on bridges. I've lived with, I know some, they're not quiet types. They're going to tell their opinion. I think once they went and tried to tell their boss supervisor, what was going on, I think they got shut down. Yeah. If you want to keep your job, you just keep your mouth shut. And that, Throughout reading this history, we're not going to get into all the incidences. We're not, <laughs> we don't have a, a 24 hour podcast to talk about this one, you know, event. There are books about it and there's some fascinating YouTube videos. Um, but there are several moments where concerns were brought to the engineers or concerns were brought to the, the foreman. And you're, you're dead on. Like they, they basically kept being told, have faith in the structure a little bit of buckling is normal. Um, didn't they even blame the the metal itself? Like they, they blamed that bolts weren't lining up, not because it was buckling, but they're like, no, it's it must have been in shipping. The shipping must have bent the metal. And that's everyone in any kind of corporation listening to this knows the blame game, how we start blaming other departments. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, that's exactly it. To, to their credit, after 75 people died, they, they shut down production and start an investigation. Now, I want to share this story with you. Okay. okay I wanna, well, I want to ask you a question. Well, how do you think they know? This is a, this is a question you might know the answer. How do they turn a, a four-way stop with stop signs to a s- traffic light? Do you know why they change those? I'm guessing just because it would allow more people to go through per turn instead of doing a one to, like, instead of turn taking at a stop. That's always what I thought. A certain okay. amount of car traffic, and they're like, okay, this intersection is busy enough now that we're going to implement that. You know, They count cars, and it's too busy. It's not. It's, the, it's a certain number of fatalities. Oh. So people have to actually die to get change, and that reminded me of this bridge story. Now that you say that, they had a, um, a crossing light over on uh, TV Highway off of about 170th. And they they counted, like they, they almost had like a running count in the newspaper how many fatalities were on that street because they didn't have a crosswalk. And they 
it, it was when like a family of four was struck simultaneously and killed them all. And that next year they finally put in a crosswalk. <laughs> Isn't that a shame? That's what it took. Yeah. That's crazy. So we're looking at th- this bridge collapse is like almost the world's biggest crosswalk <laughs> as far as like what motivated them finally to to pay into this project and to get it done right. So this is almost like talking about institutionalized humility that you spread humility amongst everybody you're working with that you have a, a ring or a symbol the, the ring is more or less like um what would you do as a kid to remember stuff you would tie a, a string around your finger you know please remember to uh you know to clean your room when you got home this is that except for made of iron and humility um so why is it so important we're going to cover morals first and then in the second half of our science we'll cover you know, the, the actual benefits of humility. Um, Lewis Carroll famously said, true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself a little bit less. The notion that we go through life and we have to promote ourselves, that's not going to go away. You need to fill out job applications. You need to tell people when you're doing cool stuff. Um, you need to kind of be able to represent yourself and like you've said Todd you're a salesman of yourself like you everybody is a salesman um shameless self-promoter listen to our evil Knievel episode right but we're saying that you can do both you can be a a self-promoter and you can be honest about your abilities and skills but being honest about your shortcomings and being honest about you know well, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll read. Um, I've got a social psychologist, um, Pellin Kessebeer. He describes humility as a quiet ego uh, and explains that, you know, good humility involves a willingness to accept the self's limits and its place in the grand scheme of things. Basically, a humble person has a calm sense of self-mastery. Um, more than knowing what they're good at, they know what they're bad at. And they don't necessarily seek praise or confirmation about the things that they're already good at and they're already known for. We've all worked with these people, Joe, who are just lacking a lot of self-awareness. And they kind of think they're good at everything. They're bright. They're intelligent. Yeah. But but they could be poor in certain areas. Isn't it nice to know someone that says, you take the lead on this? A good team player knows when to step up and then knows when to step back. Yeah. I'm going to, in the workplace, if you are truly humble, you work less hard because somebody who's humble naturally delegates. You naturally will say, man, I suck at Excel sheets. I'm going to send this to somebody who I know who's good at it. Well, isn't, doesn't that, isn't another skill too, to see talent in others as well? Absolutely. As opposed to I'm the best. I'm a control freak. I like to have my finger on the pulse of every single detail. Trusting your team and delegating to the right people is a skill in itself. Yes, 100%. And when people see that you are humble and it's a truthful humbleness, like you actually are pretty accurate on what you're good at, what you're not good at, what you can accomplish, you know, what you can deliver on, they respect you a lot more. And the quickest way to lose somebody's respect is to lie about what you can accomplish. Anytime you meet a one-upper at a bar or anytime you talk to somebody who they're good at everything or they talk a big game about what they can do, 
even if they try to deliver and just grossly underperform, you immediately assign them like the uh, a, a little red box around their their avatar picture in your team's group. Like you immediately assign them the the tag of you know woefully incompetent doesn't know it. Like they not only are they not humble by not being humble, you expose how you know unself aware you are. What about the strength in this question? This is something that I've struggled with. And it's something I respect in others. Um, when did you become old enough that you realized it was you were mature enough, self-aware enough, humble enough to ask others for help? Oh, oh God, super recently. I hate to say it, but um, it was only the last couple of years. Like I, I have floated so long at being kind of the clever person in the room that I didn't ask for help until way late in life. Like I should have known this in my 20s. And it, it only struck me a couple of years ago that I wasn't doing it enough. What about you? When did you start realizing that you need to, if not delegate, then then ask people to help where you are lacking skills? When I, when I started doing my own business and I looked at other companies and the guys that try to do everything and how poorly they failed, I realized that I need to do just what I've spent my life doing, which is the sales part. And that requires, and if you're doing your job right, you're not going to have any more time or energy for anything else. You are going to have to help recruit, beg, ask humbly, and seek out. And and I think the big thing about it is of being humble is, is appreciating other people and getting the most out of the people around you and, and really getting a strong inner term. Inner team of diverse people, you're one of someone in my inner circle, who's very different from me. Yeah. And then delegating to them. I think that's a very good way to put it. If you are a master of something, be humble about the things you're not a master of. Let other people handle it. Um, in health, when were you first humbled with your health and what you're capable of? Like, what are your limits? <laughs> On my health... It was when I went to the doctor and the doctor told me, he looked at my blood pressure, he looked at my health, he looked at my age, he looked at the <laughs> chart, and he said, you need to lose some weight. And I said, how much? Thinking he was going to give me some kind of a scale or this and that. He looked at me and goes, you know, rolled his eyes and left the room. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. He might, he might as well just said it, you know. I think that um, it, it's funny you say blood pressure. That's p pretty much the same for me. It was drinking and blood pressure in combination. And um, what was it? What was your bottom? Oh, my bottom was I was wearing a heart monitor for a couple of weeks or a month or something like that. I but, remember that. You look like you were 92 <laughs> years old. He was literally the color of gray. Yeah. I remember that very, but he didn't keep him from doing, he was still doing his old shit. You know, he's up there doing speeches and writing. <laughs> it didn't <laughs> slow was, you down. You just look bad doing it. Yeah. No, I was, it's funny you say that. Speaking of not being humble, I was, I was giving academic speeches on how to tell stories while wearing a halter monitor. <laughs> keep in mind, he was, he was barely 30 at this point. He's probably 32. He's a kid still. So that it, is was, a, it was concerning to have that serious health problems. That's scary. Yeah, as a as a very valid thing to mention is, this is not old Joe saying this. I, I was <laughs> just thirty, <laughs> but no, it's it's because I I wasn't humble in my health. Like like humility makes you live longer because you 
you're less likely to drive recklessly because you're out of the fast and the furious age of your 20s and you start realizing yes you're mortal and you probably hit a few other cars throughout your time you know humble people drink less and they they realize you know they give up smoking quicker it's not that they don't make mistakes and do dumb stuff humble people are just quicker to realize when they can't do it anymore um i think really a lot of our studies we're going to talk about is like humble doesn't mean you don't make mistakes humble just means you are quick to look back and say oh that was a bad and everyone's saying i don't want to be humble because i don't want to be i do want to be nice but i don't want to be soft i don't want to be walked all over yeah and sometimes it seems like the the nice guys do finish last joe I would say in certain circumstances, that's true. We've had episodes about, we had a Mr. Rogers episode about being nice and how incredibly beneficial it is. We had an episode about, you know, celebrity insulation and doing things for other people out of gratitude made people who were like um, disconnected so badly to where like they couldn't identify emotional traits in other people anymore doing things for other people in a very humble manner brought them back to humanity like it, it it's it's a paul piff study and it's very quick like it's it's within you know minutes you can bring somebody back to like connecting back to humanity by being humble and and by you know humbling themselves to other people have you ever spoken to people who are like near the end of their life terminal or on hospice or something like that i do in my job i deal with people 70s and 80s who this is the last thing they're going to do in their house before they're going to hospice have you have you met people who are humble about their own life like their their mortality yeah this acceptance yeah yeah i don't want to turn this podcast more morbid than i do for every other episode um but that's something that came up during the study is the humility with your sort of low, like your own existential anxiety. Um, they referred to humility in a, a research gate article about how it is a buffer. Like humility is a buffer for existential anxiety. The idea that you're willing to accept yourself and your life without illusions and sort of like think about it more as sort of mortal thoughts are become less threatening. If you think of yourself in more humble terms, like if we all go around acting as if we are Alexander the Great, like we're our, our own hero in our own story, we're capable of everything, we wield the sword, we can conquer whatever ocean we want. If you just have a very humble view of your own existence, suddenly things aren't as epic, which can be good and bad. You're, you're the dragons you slay, the, the parking space you win at work, those become less epic. You don't, you don't feel quite so much like the conquering hero. But also when catastrophes happen, they don't hurt as much. Like people who go quietly at the end, like that's that's humble. Do you think humility comes with age or are jerks always jerks? I have a suspicion that humility comes with a lack of testosterone. <laughs> I think it's age. I think it's I think it's both. I think you can meet young humble people which feels weird especially when you meet like a young humble guy who has a lot going for them and you're just like what happened to you where's your ego where'd you put it <laughs> <laughs> is it, yeah. is, did you leave that at home 
<laughs> it is funny when you meet one of those people and you don't meet them very often when you do them you're, or sometimes they have low self-esteem and you're like what <laughs> i have like a i have a distant cousin who is like a football star and like has an extremely attractive cheerleader girlfriend and he's like he's gotten a scholarship he's about to go to college he, and and he's humble just by the world standards yeah, yeah he's like, perfect I, I mean like like he is living the absolute high school academic dream in every every way conceivable and he is extremely humble to the point where i like grilled him like i stopped him and i was like i got to ask some simple psychology questions <laughs> <laughs> So, may, so maybe the aging thing comes from the humble for the age comes from being disappointed enough times that you realize that, like you said, you're not Alexander the Great. You can't get every parking space and get every girl, get every job, pick every stock, right? Right. I think the more you have those comforting illusions popped for you with a needle, that happens naturally throughout aging, throughout life. When we think of how you gain maturity as you age, I really am starting to suspect that it's not that you gain maturity, it's that you have more of those comforting illusions stripped away. If you want to meet a uh, a dumb old person, find somebody who's been insulated and has never had their illusions challenged. Find somebody who's privileged and nobody's ever come up to them and like popped an illusion for them. Those are people who are like, how'd you not get mature? And that's, that's generally how. They, they didn't get that humility that they so badly needed. Um, I just want to share one last phrase. Like, like <laughs> we're going to have links to all these studies, but um, there is a book out that I, I really want to read. I, I got snippets of it in articles, but uh, it's called Humility, the Soil in Which Happiness Grows. Um, and, and in it, she talks about how humble people are able to develop stronger interpersonal relationships because not only can they do this trick for themselves we're talking about where they they you know see themselves without illusions they do it for other people like they they can look at somebody else and say oh you know i get why you're doing these things i i see your flaws i see your strengths and i i can accept that instead of trying to classify them i don't look over the table and see you know uh todd the bodybuilder the gym or todd the public speaker I see Todd as the human and the friend and the person who you know has all these flaws and all these strengths and they come bundled together. If you can see that and be humble both with yourself and other people, you live a more realistic life, I think. And this, you know, these studies are they kind of bear that out. I see that too with the anyone who's just two in their profession, but the first one that pops in my head are police officers and attorneys. Yeah, they seem to not separate work and <laughs> right. their job from who they are we we had an episode long ago i i don't even i think it was an attraction or something like that we talked about picking intrinsic values if you pick it you know if you are a student and all your value for yourself your personal worth comes from grades or, or how being a mother being a mother, being a football star, being a cop, being a firefighter. If you pick something that can be taken away from you and that's where your value comes from, that's not humble and you're setting yourself up for a huge fall. If your intrinsic values are morals, they're family, there are like actual values that you would have for yourself inside, not only will those be things that people can't really touch and, and hurt or take away, 
but they will serve you better. Like we, we have a lot of studies that show that those people are more optimistic. And like, if you've ever read the book grit, you know, Angela Duckworth, she kind of backs that up as internal intrinsic drive is way more valuable than what you identify as. My mom says this and I asked her one time, I said, do you ever notice that the, there's young parents who have their first kid and um, they're almost arrogant. They're cocky about their being, <laughs> being a parent. And my mom says in the sweetest voice, she said, well, she said, for a new mother, having your first baby is very exciting. And that little baby is perfect. It hasn't done anything to humiliate you yet. <laughs> right. Uh, so that's what we need. We need time travel so that all new mothers can see the moment their kids screams, you've ruined my life and slams a door <laughs> in their face. Let them enjoy those few, few first years. Okay. <laughs> no time travel videos for us. So do you mind if we talk about the moment of the bridge collapse? We have engineers and workers skipping work because they know it's going to happen. I, during the research, I saw that there was a moment where they almost stopped it. They came very close to not having this thing take so many lives. Yeah, there was just a matchup in communication. Um, this was on the first collapse. And there was a telegraph that did, didn't actually reach the job site because the engineers in America, who again were not on site, thought the other guy sent it. <laughs> like, I thought you did it. Oh, you thought you didn't tell them to stop to shut down? Can you believe that? That's. It's almost like a comedy. Like I, I'm, I'm laughing not because it's, it, it's, te it's a terrible disaster. I'm laughing because it sounds like something that would happen in Seinfeld, where it's like you didn't send it, no, you didn't send it, and then you know, of course, terrible disaster afterward. Yeah. Now, the second collapse. I move on to the second collapse. The first one was gone. The second one was not as much from neglect. Um, but you'd assume after that many deaths, there would be more careful moving forward. You wouldn't assume there'd be a second collapse would you no i think they would double and triple check every single scrap of iron that went into the next bridge so the two head engineers of the first bridge build were let go and they took a blunt of the blame rightfully so they were they were the they were the captain of the titanic when it went down right they halted they did an investigation and they didn't start for two more years now the second collapse was not from neglect, but just pushing the envelope too hard work-wise. Okay. And 13 people died. To now, give you a, an image of it, they were raising the center of the bridge for this? Correct. Okay. So there was almost to completion. This bridge ended up taking two decades. Um, two collapses, which killed many people. Um, 88 people in total. It was also slowed down by poor funding. Um, and, of course, World War One inconveniently came around, too. <laughs> right. So a lot of steel went to... A lot of resources went over into Europe. And the end-up cost of it was $23 million, which is $350 million today. <laughs> that is so much money. And it could have been so much less. Like, if if... The original council in Quebec had just, I mean, like, like you said, they kind of tried to cheap out and they went with somebody who hadn't, you know. Now, you talk about this bridge being being safe 
it obviously wasn't even safe to build. It was supposed to be sturdy enough to hold railroads. So trains were going to go across this too. It wasn't just cars. It wasn't just passengers. This is not some bridge in the park. This was supposed to be a massive structure that a train could run across. Wow. So imagine if they would have got it done and it was still buckling and bending, they would have just signed it off and and who knows how many people could have perished. So if we want to learn from disasters, like we don't have to kill 100 people by collapsing a bridge. We can just learn when we, you know, get an F in school or we come back, you know, from a bad doctor's visit or if we realize that we're not being as truthful with ourselves as we should when we, you know, face disastrous results. Have you ever heard of um, mastery behavior? No, I'm not familiar with that. Okay. Um, we're going to link off to a couple of science direct articles that um, based on studies coming out of University of California, Davis. Um, UC Davis put out articles about mastery behavior. And the idea is that humility allows you to learn faster. Essentially. How so? <clears throat> well, that's that's that come in, come into the listening and genuine curiosity. A little bit. It's more about how quick you are to um, readdress a failing or a fault in your education. If you're in math class, and this is this is basically the uh, concept they present in the the paper from UC Davis. Um, they talk about people doing math homework. Somebody comes across a difficult problem. And they simply decide they can't do it. So they copy the answers from the back of the textbook. Whereas somebody who is humble, they come across the same problem. And instead of just trying to find the answer to get the job done, they rework it in their head and they look up how to do it better. And then next time they're better equipped to do it. You know, I've always thought this and I've said this a million times. You've probably heard me say it is I've noticed that simpler people less intelligent people will learn a little bit about something and think they know everything. And then in really smart, intelligent people, brilliant friends, and I have a bunch of them, if they learn about a little bit about something, they realize, shit, I don't know anything about this. I'd like to learn more. That is a very good way of saying it. That, that's, that's perfect. A, a humble person will see what they are lacking in knowledge and they'll try to cover that gap they'll 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 reinvest in that subject even if it's really small um everybody plays the same game when you're sitting around the table and like you're out to dinner and we had this happen we were talking about um what was it did the beatles ever play in portland oregon and while we were chatting about the beatles um i was like we gotta look it up we gotta look it up who has reception like <laughs> half of us our phones didn't work and I, I got my fiance to look it up and we were debating it. it's too small a city it's too big a city at that yeah. time we had all these we had these theories it's like oh no we didn't have the coliseum back then we, we did have some better venues of course it, we looked it up ends up the beatles had played in portland oregon but we looked it up it, it's a, a a humble group of friends or a, a humble scholar will say, I don't know this, but I should. So they don't, it's not that they just don't know. They fill it in. Yeah. <laughs> they are genuinely care. They seek someone out. They look it up on the internet. They find an expert and then they know. And I swear to God, not everyone does this. Like I, I have people get mad at me when I look things up while we're in a discussion 
they'll they'll get mad because they'll say, why are you fact checking us? Or, or, you know, why are you, you know, why are you on your phone? Like, why are you looking things up as we talk? We're, we're just having a fun discussion. It's not that I want to be right. It's that I want to know that I'm genuinely curious about enough things to look it up. And I'm not particularly good at math, but the same applies to any discipline. If you don't know it, it's better if you take the time to sort of like research it, figure out how to do it better. Not just little factoids, but like a a master woodworker, once they realize that the type of like um, joint they're using isn't as good as it could be, they look into how to do better joints. They don't just say, I can fix what I currently have. They say, there's a better way. I've been a lifelong exerciser in the gym, a gym rep since I was probably 14. And about five years ago, I was getting a lot of nagging injuries that just wouldn't go away and joint pain and just body stress. And so what I did, I started before I did any exercise. Now these exercises, keep in mind, I'm in my forties. I've been doing since I was 14, well, at least once a week, these exercises, I know how to do them. I know proper form. Yeah. I look up a YouTube video, how to do deadlifts. And I'd find some meathead from New Jersey or New York, some personal trainer looks like he's on 10 of steroids. You know what I realized, Joe? I've been doing them wrong this whole time. I changed my form. I watched a two-minute video, and I did that for every exercise that I did. And it turned out <laughs> I was doing over 90% of them wrong, but I thought <laughs> I'd been doing them correctly. I was proud of my form. And then those injuries and that stuff went away when I got just two minutes of, of training on each of these exercises. That's... That is the physical embodiment, literally, of being humble in your your mastery. Um, yeah, I had somebody correct me on the difference between a cross and a crucifix and, and what it means to have a corpus on a religious symbol. And I was like, oh, I've been using those words wrong my entire life. Like, in, in short, to to sort of put a pin in, in humility, it's it's... Intellectual humility is the willingness to acknowledge your current limitations. And it can be almost so short and so quick, it's almost imperceptible. It's not like it's a meditation where you have to sit down and flog yourself for an hour and think about all the things you've been wrong about <laughs> and say, why can't I be more humble? It's much more of you get to a problem, you don't know the answer. Instead of looking in the back of the book, you educate yourself on how to do it better or you look up the actual facts before just proceeding. We live in a world where everybody is being rewarded for looking in the back of the book, being fast at work, getting more, you know, more work crammed into your workday. That's where the reward is. But happiness and actual skill and actual mastery, they come from taking the time, which is tough. <laughs> um, yeah, I, we all love Tony Stark. Like we, we love, we love geniuses who know they're right. What we should love are people who struggle over and over to become right. So years after the collapse, um, one of the engineers, a Canadian engineer and inventor, uh, Herbert Haltane decides that, you know, they need a better system. We mentioned in our, our opening narrative that, you know, it, it, it involves passing your hand through a giant iron ring, accepting a ring under your finger, 
a very um, almost fantasy-like pledge that you give about, you know, doing the best work you can before yourself and your God and your creator and all this stuff. <laughs> um, this guy was serious business. Like, he, he was building a ceremony that would sort of, like, uh, cement engineers as their own respectable guild. That before the Wild West of engineering was, if you could do some math and you had some good jobs under your belt, you could build a bridge for a city. Um, after uh, Haltane, it's a ceremony. You have to be part of the guild. You, you have to have passed through these schools. The, the, the seven wardens, even that sounds fantasy. You know, they are all, you know, high educators in engineering schools. And they hired somebody. They, they went out of their way to hire somebody who literally was a fantasy writer to help them come up with all these ceremonies and symbols. And they contacted who? <laughs> a very fa- famous Rudy R. Kipling. He was the author of The Jungle Book. Uh, world known. And he was a, a Freemason. What do they call those? Um, Freemasons. Also, a.k.a. the Illuminati. <laughs> so and th- th- those were drenched in this kind of culture, right? Yeah. This kind of show, this kind of thing. Oh, God, yes. Freemasons have a lot of... Yeah, yeah, interesting subculture, almost cult-like rituals and symbols, and yeah, here's the special goggles you wear when you have been revealed to the truth and all this stuff. It seems like to me they did more resources in hiring him <laughs> to do this ceremony because this was such a bad thing um, that I think it ruined. It just it was on everyone's conscience for for their whole lives. So they wanted to make sure that this terrible thing never happened again. And I think that's very um, noble. The Jungle Book was huge. Like he was, he was his generation's J.K. Rowling. Like, like it, it'd be like if an, an engineer's school went to J.K. Rowling and was like, "Could you help us come up with these wizard ceremonies for our engineers?" Would it be John Grisham for us in here in America? Yeah. Now? <laughs> Is he that big or not? Or actually, real a real writer, right? Is what yeah. I would say. Now, do you know a lot about Rudyard Kipling? Very little, actually. He has some amazing things from his past I w- I'd like to share with you. Um, he One of his very, very famous um, short stories, Baba Black Sheep, was actually a story that he wrote as an adult, but it talked about when he was six years old, he went to a foster home with his sister and just had extreme neglect. He was there for five years, and it was, I guess it was just a horror show, which a lot of times for people in the arts... They're pretty protected. They're not exposed to that kind of stuff. Later in his life as an adult, he lost two children. He got very sick with pneumonia, and his his young daughter was with him. He got better. She passed away. Oh, my God. And this was tragic. But even, I don't know if it's worse, but he had three kids. The second one died. This is what happened. His son had eye vision problems he was 18 he was 17 years old going to 18 but he wanted to go and fight in world war one he wanted to, to protect his country but he couldn't get in so his dad being a famous author pulled a few strings and got him to be a lieutenant in the irish guard a second lieutenant mm. but he got killed in action at the age of 18 so rudyard the famous rich author was mourning another loss of a child. Now you talk about being qualified, 
Rudyard Kipling, you talked about how famous he was. Yeah. He was the youngest person ever to win the Nobel Peace Prize in literature. That's wild. So basically, they went out and they hired the most famous, well-paid writer of their time who had won a Nobel Prize that year, whose stock was at its highest. This is like he won the Nobel Prize 50 years ago. Yeah. The same year the bridge collapsed. So perfect timing. Yeah, his he gets the Nobel, bridge collapses, let's hire the guy who is the most famous writer right now. Now, they also have another thing. I don't know if you read this in your research. I thought this was pretty cool. Engineers in Canada have, once a year, they have a tradition. They take this anti-fungus medicine and they rub it all over themselves. It turns them to purple like a Barney. And purple, you know, Joe, in the Bible is a sign of royalty and a sign of trust. <laughs> oh, they become the purple man group. How did I not know about that? Look it up. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Rudyard Kipling might be best known for the Jungle Book, um, but my favorite work of his is his poem, If, which is really when you boil it down about humility and about going through life with as much humility as possible and, and being able to pick yourself up after, you know, blow after blow after blow. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you you can trust yourself when all men doubt you or make allowance for their doubting too if you can wait and not be tired by waiting or being lied about don't deal in lies or being hated don't give way to hating and yet don't look too good nor talk too wise if you can dream and not make dreams your master. If you can think and not make thoughts your aim. If you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. If you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken twisted by knives to make a trap for fools. Or watch the things they gave your life to broken and stooped to build them up with worn out tools. If you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss. If you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone. And so hold on when there is nothing in you except the will which says to them, hold on. If you could talk with crowds and keep your virtue or walk with kings nor lose the common touch. If neither foes nor living friends can hurt you if all men count with you, but none too much. 
if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run. Yours is the earth and everything that's in it. And which is more, you'll be a man, my son. You've been listening to The Re-Engineered You. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You mean the world to us. We have a new episode every week. You can connect with us at www.reengineeredyou.com. That's where we have research links, show notes, feedback, and blog articles for each of our episodes. We're not experts in anything, but we've got an opinion on everything. (laughs) 